Acts 1, verse 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, from John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father had fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing to heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking to heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray again with me? Father, we come to you very much like little children came to you in those days when you were here, Lord. Like little children come to their father. We come because we thirsty for you. We, we hunger. Father, I ask that this morning, even as we go through your word and think about it, that, Lord, you may refresh your people, that you may melt our hearts, that you may convict us, that you may comfort us, that you may encourage us, Lord. As we look again at, the, at these great promises, and we hear our great mission, this time from your own mouth. So help us, Lord, to apply this to our hearts, illuminate our minds so that we understand. For your sake and in your name, Jesus, amen. So last week I was here and we went through Psalm 115. We saw how this, that psalm 
taught us important things about the church, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The psalm it speaks of the heart of the church. You may remember that. A heart that doesn't turn to itself, but turn towards God, not to us, not to us, but to your name, give glory. This is a heart that is not so much concerned about itself, but to the glory of its Lord. Then we also saw that the psalmist speaks of the mission of the church, which is to tell the nations to be witness of the gospel of salvation, both back then in the Old Testament and now. Finally, the psalm also spoke of the promises and blessings that God gave his people to empower them to be, to have the heart, and to proclaim him. The reason I'm reminding you of Psalm 115 is because I believe that the text that we just read, which is a very important introduction to the book of Acts, have many echoes of that psalm. In fact, I look at Psalm 115 almost in many ways as an introduction to the church, as an introduction to what was being fulfilled in greater measure in Acts 2, in the book, at the beginning of book of Acts. The text we read is going to echo the heart of the church. What is it that we're doing here? What is, what, what's our heart? What is our in inclination in Christ? It will speak of our mission, which is to be witness of Christ. And we will also speak of the great blessings and power that God gives his church to accomplish its mission and to have its hearts towards him. So with that in mind, I want to look with you again at the very verse of Luke's writings. Verse 1, he said, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, you see, when we start reading any book, when we read any work, it's always important to understand the intent of the author. Otherwise, we completely misunderstand what, he's, what the author is really saying. And that is certainly true for, for the text that we just read. And so when we look at what Luke wrote here, we notice at least two things right at the start. The first one is that he's dedicating, he's writing this uh, work for this person, not completely certain that it's a person, but most likely a person called Theophilus, which we really don't know who was it. But then he goes on to say that these things that he's writing, they are a follow-up, a sequel to a previous work that he had written. Now, we know that the previous work of Luke is the gospel, the gospel of Luke. And then he notes to Theophilus that what he's writing now is really the story. The first one was the story of what Jesus has done. And what he's writing now is the story of what Jesus continued to do. 
Now, that's a very curious thing to say. Because the implication of what he's writing here, it may be that whatever Jesus did was incomplete. If the church needs to, to complete something, to, to, to continue something, maybe what Jesus done was not that complete. Well, that's not at all what Luke is saying here. What Luke is saying at the beginning of his work and will continue to develop through the whole book as he narrates to us the beginning of the Christian church is that Jesus' work was complete. What he's doing now is to apply and to proclaim his work, his gospel of salvation in the hearts of people by the power of the Holy Spirit through his people in and through the church. This church, which is formed by the community of the believers. Verse 2, we read that, Until that day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles who he had chosen. Well, that this church, this community of the believers, is not a loose community. It's not a loose group of people. Here they are gathered together, under, or better saying, on top of the foundation of the, the apostles. In other words, we do not today come together or any Sunday or any day of the week or institution as a church, as a group of believers to come up with new ideas or new traditions or new ways of doing church that's why we just read a few minutes ago that we are a apostolic church. Because we are founded in the writings of the apostles who learned from Christ. That's what Luke said. Verse 3, he presented himself alive to them, to the apostles, after his sufferings and many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Also, what is important to say here as a, a means of introduction is that neither the apostles or the disciples at the time or even today as a church, we learn, we teach, or we act by ourselves. The apostles and each one of us need to be enabled to do so. To do so. Even to have that heart that we saw last week, you can only have the heart if you're enabled by God to have the heart. You can only accomplish the mission if you're enabled to accomplish the mission. You can only learn and even hear the voice of your pastor Jesus this, this afternoon if you are enabled by him. That's precisely why he told the disciples to wait, wait there until they would be enabled to move on with their mission. All right, so then we have it. Luke's introduction should give us a good idea of his purpose. It should also give us a good idea of what the disciples were doing there. Meaning Jesus would continue to teach and to act 
through he aimed and through his church by the hands of the apostles to establish his kingdom of light and defeat the kingdom of darkness by the power of the Holy Spirit. Likewise, to us that means that Christ today continues to teach and to act in you and through you, through the church, by the words of the apostles, by the words of his scripture, to establish his kingdom of light, to defeat the kingdom of darkness. That seems quite clear. I think that when the disciples were there listening these things, it, it was quite clear. It's quite clear to us. Jesus would continue to speak. He would continue to act. He would do that through us, in us. But, but then, now what? Now what? Now what? Where we go from there? What does it mean to to, to what this whole thing means? What in practice? Where we go from here? That's when the disciples came to Jesus with a very practical question. Verse six. Lord, will you? Is that the time? Will you now? Restore the kingdom to Israel. Meaning, when things will really happen? When will we see the results of this whole thing? For example, when will we see our nation, Israel, restored politically, economically, spiritually? I mean, that is certainly the goal of the gospel, isn't it? To heal, to restore, to make a new. Or maybe you have a similar question. I got the gospel. I, I understand salvation by grace. I know that the Lord is, continues to speak, to teach. I know that he continues to act in us, through us, to defeat darkness in us and around us. But how exactly this will fix for real, in practice, anything? When will I see the brokenness of my family completely healed, for example? When will I, I, I don't know, find the stability in life? Uh, uh, when my plans and my dreams, which are good ones and holy ones, see the realization? And for that matter, when will I see our nation, which is in a bit of a mess right now, when will see our nation held, restored, back to its roots? Those are legit questions. And isn't it the whole point of the gospel? To, to restore, to heal. Well, 
I think we should look at Jesus' answer. Verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or, or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. But, however, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit come upon you and you will be my witness in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The Lord did two things here in his answer. First, he reaffirmed, recorrected them because he had done this before and reinstated that God's decreed times was not up to them to know. But second, even though their question was a, a good question, was a, a legit question, their eyes, their attention were fit in the wrong ultimate goal. Let me try to explain. Israel was not the finish line, but a starting point to a much greater mission that would spread from there toward the ends of the earth. Jesus' answer, what it does, it, it re refocus their attention from being primarily Israelites to be citizens of the kingdom, witness of the king. Ironically, that would be the only way to restore Israel. Only the gospel and the message of the kingdom would have enough power to restore the nation or any nation by that matter. You see, the only way to fix something, to fix anything, is not by focusing on what's broken, but to focus on what can heal, what can fix it. They're focusing on what was broken. The only way to dissipate darkness, if we turn all these lights, and if it's evening, the only way to fix darkness is not looking at darkness, it's by flipping the switch and bringing light. The only way to find redemption is to look at the Redeemer. So what Jesus did, he took their eyes out of what they wanted to fix and placed in himself. Isn't that the way of the kingdom always? Psalm 115. Not to us, not to us, but to your name give glory. You see, Jesus answered, not only had obviously implication for them that they were there, but have a lot of implication for you and me. To start, we are no longer primarily Americans or Brazilians. We are citizens of the kingdom, witness of the great king. Yeah, it's that radical. The call to be witness of Christ is extremely a radical one. It changes our perspectives and priorities on absolutely every aspect of our lives. Let me put it in a more personal 
example or a more personal take on it. Let me say it like that for your husbands and fathers. You are no longer a husband that happens to know Jesus. That's not who you are. You belong to Jesus primarily and ultimately. You are a husband so that you can represent Christ to your wife. You are His witness. Your highest purpose is not to be the best husband you can possibly be. If you thought that that was your highest purpose, if you thought that that was the ultimate goal in your family for your wife to be the best husband you can possibly be, I'm here to tell you that is not your highest purpose. For your highest purpose is to represent Jesus, to extend His love, His faithfulness, His mercy, His protection. Every aspect of your dealing with your wife is to reflect who Christ is to her. You are His witness. To be a good husband is just consequence of this. You are His witness. You're no longer a professional who happens to know Jesus so that sometimes you speak of Jesus with others. No. You belong to Jesus so that as a professional doing whatever it is that you do, you are there mainly and primarily and ultimately to be Jesus in your workplace. You are no longer a student, a teen, a young adult, wandering about your future, trying to find your identity aside from your Christian faith. No. But because ultimately you belong to Jesus, your personality, your abilities, even your dreams all exist and were given to you so that you witness the great love of Christ to whomever you come in contact with. That is what being a witness of Christ means. That is our mission. Just like we saw in Psalm 115. If our hearts is to Him, not to us, but to your, na to your name give glory. And in Psalm 115, our mission was to tell the nations that He's a great God and has done a great thing, which, which is to send His Son. Well, the mission didn't change. You first belong to Him so that you witness Him in whatever social context you find yourself. Let me put it yet in another way. Jesus, Jesus is never a means to anything. He's always the ultimate goal. 
That is why the Lord took the disciples' attention from the restoration of Israel to put in himself so they could be his witness. So, just as Jesus was not a means to bless Israel, but Israel existed to point it to him, so there is nothing in your life to which Jesus is a means to it. He is not a means to a better marriage. He's not a means to better kids. He's not a means to a better job. He's not a means to anything. He is the ultimate goal. The forgiveness of our sins doesn't have an end in itself. The forgiveness of our sins is to take us to Him, the Redeemer, the Forgiver, the Savior. Your salvation, your eternal future doesn't have a means in itself. Jesus is the ultimate goal. You are saved so that you belong to Him. And that is why, and I'll conclude with that, and that is why the promise that the disciples heard from the angels were so important. Verse 11, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you have saw him going into heaven. You see, Jesus' final promise that he would return in person, physically, to consummate his work of redemption, of restoration of all things, to end all battles, to finish what he started in us, in you and me, so that we will be with him forever. The ultimate goal. That promise was nothing short of the greatest promise ever. To be with him. This is one of the greatest promises if not the greatest promise and blessing of the church. You and I can have this promise sustained the early church through the worst of the worst. Because they knew that ultimately the king would return. Ultimately the suffering and the persecution and the jail time and the beatings and the social pressure, everything was going to subside and would give away when the king returned. Because they heard, if they were living at this time or in the second century, they heard, that is the promise. We heard from the apostles, we heard from the disciples. Luke wrote about it. In the same way that the king went up, he's coming back. And what's the end of everything? What's the conclusion of everything? What's the joy, ultimately, ultimate joy of everything? That we 
will be with him. His person. His person that, that, that gives us everything that we can possibly desire. Whatever joys we have here in this earth, whatever sense of accomplishment, whatever relief in suffering, whatever joys in feeling the forgiveness of Christ, whatever peace you hold, those things will pale in comparison to what you will experience when the king returns. But you're not going to experience for a moment, for a day, for half a day, for a Sunday morning. You're going to experience ultimate joy, ultimate peace, because you're going to be forever in his presence. To know him and to be his witness, the witness of his person, is our greatest calling in life. Everything else comes along. Everything else falls as consequences. In the words of Peter, you were called so that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So, Trinity, as you spread out there, you go as witness of light that shine into darkness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you gave us a new heart that cry not to us, not to us, but to your name give glory. And if that is not glorious enough, you gave us the mission to take your name, the honor to take our name to people around us, to witness your very person, your love, the forgiveness, the redemption that you applied in us to witness that to others. And if that wasn't glorious enough, you filled us with the power of the Holy Spirit so that, empowered by you, we can be our witness. Lord, we dare to ask exactly these things. I ask that for my brothers here in Trinity, for myself, my family, for Bohemia, that we may dare to be this kind of witness in the regions that you placed us. For your sake and in your name, Jesus. Amen.